Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our guest today is Professor John Q. Barrett. Hello, John. Hello, Kristen. And we are going to be talking about a report that uh, Justice Jackson gave to President Truman in early June 1945. And this sort of sets up um, what later, certainly his thinking, and then what later develops into the, well, the London Conference and then the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. So I think we should probably start with setting the historical stage for this. So um, we are about two months after uh, President Roosevelt's death and President Truman uh, taking over as president. And then we are about 40 days into President Truman appointing Justice Jackson as the chief of counsel. Yes, and I, and I think Jackson in giving this report to Truman physically on June 6th, and then Truman releases it on June 7th, 1945, is really kind of rounding off and viewing it as a 30-day progress report. Uh, although Jackson had been recruited to this chief counsel position with responsibility for the captured Nazis and how the Allies would deal with them uh, in April, Truman had unveiled that at uh, with an announcement on May 2nd, and now this is June 6th. So give or take, this is a 30-day report. That makes sense. Yes. And he uh, certainly in detailing the work that he had done in those first 30 days was pretty active. He um, wanted to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. I, Jackson um, took this assignment, answered this request from the president uh, and inherited a job that was completely amorphous. So what he's doing with the first 30 days is scrambling uh, to get his arms around it, to figure out um, you know, what the idea is of a legal process to hold the Nazis accountable internationally for World War II, in effect. Uh, Jackson has to figure out what diplomacy has been done before he's recruited, and he finds out really not very much. He has to um, sort of look at the different concepts and begin to think about how they're viable or not. The concepts uh, sort of range from some kind of uh, hearing process or some kind of uh, public gathering and arraignment to something much more like a traditional courtroom trial and, you know, sort of looking at all of that. Uh, Jackson is sort of figuring out what pieces he needs to pull together from military people, from diplomats, uh, from uh, military in the field to have the ball to himself. Uh, and then he needs to survey the situation which means that in that first 30 days before he's ever uh, taking the, the top off his pen and writing a report to Truman, uh, he gets on a plane and goes to Europe. He goes from Paris to London 
to what had been Germany, Frankfurt, Wiesbaden, um, lots of meetings, lots of what we would call um, sort of liaison connecting, uh, and really trying to recruit the Allied powers to step up because the United States had gone first in appointing Jackson. Um, so it is a huge, complicated month, and he's boiling that down onto, you know, give or take uh, eight sheets of paper for Harry Truman. Well, and it also, you know, can you talk a little bit too about his, he was still on the court at this point as oh, well, yeah. and so trying to balance those duties. Yeah, I mean, Jackson is a Supreme Court justice. He's in his fourth term on the court, appointed summer of 1941, and now this is April into May of 1945. The court's calendar typically begins with the first Monday in October and ends with the handing down of decisions in late May or early June in these days, and then a summer recess. Uh, and part of the pitch to Jackson recruited was, you can do this during summer recess, uh, but the court was not in a recess. Uh, Jackson is juggling Supreme uh, Court work and uh, what becomes Nuremberg work, chief of counsel or not chief of counsel. Um, and he's Bernie Kimmel's of the Supreme Court work definitely starts to slip. You can see him missing some proceedings. Um, and obviously, when he's in Europe, he's missed Supreme Court sittings. Um, and some last opinion of the term he had drafted and probably intended to file um, as dissents or concurring opinions, uh, he pulls back because they're not really quite as finished, polished, and up to his standard. Uh, better not to voice, uh, you know, sort of a half-baked opinion. Um, his colleague, Justice Felix Frankfurter, particularly in one case, says to him, this isn't up to your standard when Frankfurter <laughs> reads a draft. Um, Jackson's persuaded. So, so the Supreme Court is diminishing and the Nazi project is ascending. And eventually by uh, really at the time of this report and shortly thereafter, he's 100% working on the Nazi project. Gotcha. At this point, did he still think that the trial could likely be completed by the end of the summer? Or was he already realizing, I think this is a bigger task than he, he was still optimistic that the thing, um, whether it be a trial or some kind of other proceeding, um, could largely be completed during the summer of 1945, that he might be a little bit late getting back to the court you know, miss the first Monday in October, maybe be there by the first Monday in November. Um, so he still has that optimism, that excessive optimism at this point in time. Okay. And then, so some of the mechanics that he discusses in this report, um, I was struck by, and I think that this may also come as a bit of a surprise, um, you know, as I mentioned uh, to you and to our audience often, I'm still learning about all of this myself as well. So uh, in addition to trying to create what is the over, what is the big plan or what is the plan for the major criminals, there were already things in motion for some of the lesser um, crimes and criminals. And so he was also trying to sort out what is mine versus what is something for somebody else to deal with. Yes, it's a very complicated and um, kind of ad hoc improvisational landscape that was in existence by the time he's appointed. And he is chief of counsel, you know, top dog, if you will, appointed by the president of the United States. He's trying to figure out, you know, what are all these pieces and which ones am I supposed to take on board? Which ones can I sort of 
segment off, um, his principal job, which is the Allied commitment dating back to the Moscow Declaration of 1943, is to handle the arch criminals, the top Nazis whose crimes weren't based in any particular location that really spanned Germany and then in the war, the occupied nations and the entirety of the Third Reich. So this is Hitler and his inner circle who are the principal focus who will be handled by the Allies internationally. Separate and already ongoing in many ways from these arch criminals are you know, very significant atrocious crimes were in particular locations. And those are being handled by occupying allied military forces, uh, American, British, Russian, and a little bit by the French in particular locations. These are atrocities and massacres and events in particular spots and courts martial or military commissions are already occurring in the spring into the 19th. It also includes uh, occupation trials. So there's a fighting ends and those military commission proceedings uh, give way. The allies are now occupying the sectors of what had been Germany and the perpetrators in those places uh, can be dealt with by those occupying powers. It also includes the newly liberated reconstituted countries that had been occupied by, conquered by Nazi Germany. So there is again a Czechoslovakia, there is again a Poland, there is again, you know, many, many nations where horrible, arguably criminal things happened and those newly restored nations are now in charge of handling those matters. And so Jackson's trying to understand this whole landscape figure out which pieces connect to the arch criminals, which are clearly his, and figure out what he can kind of cleanly let go of. Um, one thing that's interesting, and I've of course read this report many times, but every time I reread re it, something sort of strikes me. Um, he's aware that American opinion is, American public knowledge is aware of atrocities against US soldiers. And he's, writing this report is if that's on his plate. Um, in the end, that turns out really not to be on his plate, but things like the Malmody massacre in Belgium, uh, which was surrendered American soldiers being machine gunned, um, is a headline piece of knowledge for every American and a late in the war atrocity. And so holding those Nazis accountable, the Malmody criminals is something that Jackson is conscious of and sort of thinking about at this early moment as something on his plate, which in the end, it really isn't. Well, and so I, I, one of the things I was struck by in the report is he makes, uh, or starts making very clear and to your arch criminal um, perspective that there were so many individual perpetrators of atrocities that there really was no way to effectively, for him anyway, to effectively deal with all of that. Right. So he was going to focus on the major criminals and then the organizations. Right, the and the, the organizations is a connective thread between the arch criminals who will be individually held accountable by Jackson and the allies in this international endeavor and all the other perpetrators. I mean, think of a, a pyramid and a pyramid with a small number in the top box and then very significant numbers as you kind of move down, all of whom are above the cut line of potentially criminally culpable. Uh, Jackson and the allies are only gonna deal with that very top uh, peak of the pyramid. But by adjudicating in this international context, 
the criminality of Nazi organizations, what this international project would produce was a verdict and a judgment that could be used in sector trials, in newly reconstituted nation trials, in military commissions, in locality proceedings, so they wouldn't have to try again and again what was the Gestapo, what was the SS. It would be an established thing that this was a criminal organization. And then against the individual, it would simply be a question of, are you the Mr. X who was a senior official and had decisional responsibility in this criminal organization? Right. And so, or is there some sort of exculpatory evidence or some sort of duress yes. that you may right. have been under? Right. I'm, I'm not this Smith. I'm the other Smith. I'm not this Mueller. I'm that Mueller. Um, and so, you know, these individuals in sector locality cases would have a chance to exculpate themselves, but they wouldn't have a chance to relitigate that the Gestapo was a philanthropic organization. Right. Yeah, that, that would certainly be a time saver uh, going forward as well. In terms right. of I mean, they're trying to deal with a huge number problem. Right. Um, you know, we're talking in some of the charts where they put numbers on the different slices of sectors of responsibility. We're talking over 100,000 potential criminally culpable uh, Nazi actors, ranging from military to political to economic to occupation government and so forth. Um, you, you couldn't sort of try them on a one-by-one -one basis in anybody's lifetime. And the public, of course, wouldn't have the patience for a multi-decade process. Um, so what they're trying to do is both deal with large numbers, figure out how to do that fairly, and figure out how to do that relatively expeditiously. Makes sense. So then we've talked about the allies a few times, and he mentions in his report that a proposal had been sent to the United Kingdom and Russia and France um, to start defining the protocols and what the tribunal's responsibilities would be and some initial laying out of the crimes, the definition of the crimes. Um, and by this point in time, Churchill had appointed uh, Sir um, Maxwell, no, David Maxwell Fife. Well, uh, so, sort of. Lord John Simon, um, who was the Lord Chancellor and um, original point person had been handling this for the UK since the Yalta conference. Mm -hmm. So still still under Roosevelt and before Jackson, um, the American portfolio really belongs to Judge Sam Rosenman, who is Roosevelt's White House counsel and chief speechwriter. And from meeting with Roosevelt in the Mediterranean after Yalta in early March of 1945, Rosenman goes to London. And Rosenman and Simon are trying to sort of iron out the US-UK part of this first. Uh, and then I think, you know, an Anglo-American unity would be something then presented to the Russians. And then the French as the sort of fourth and smallest because newest of the allied powers would be asked to sort of join in this plan. Um, in that period of time of Rosenman-Simon um, negotiation, Roosevelt dies. Um, so that's March into early April. Rosenman comes back to the U.S. for the funeral and then is assisting Harry Truman and is the principal liaison for the recruitment of Jackson. Um, Truman, of course, gets a huge amount of credit here, but Truman is a new, um, you know, understandably, I think, um, terrified is too strong, but sobered and cowed president of the United States looking at the scope of these responsibilities, he's very heavily dependent on the continuity from Roosevelt's advisors. Yep. And so the, the plan here 
and the idea that Jackson is the right stature and talent to represent the United States is really the Roosevelt inner circle presenting this to Truman and Truman saying, yes, absolutely, that's a good plan and that's the right man to recruit. So it's the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. It's his undersecretary, Robert Patterson. It's the Assistant Secretary of War, John McCloy. And it's the White House Counsel, Sam Rosenman, who, and maybe Francis Biddle, the Attorney General, and maybe Edward Stettinius, the Secretary of State. That four to six people is the, the sort of planning hub that bridges from the Roosevelt to the Truman era. Yeah, and Kurt Graham, the director of the Truman uh, Library and Museum, when he was here a few weeks ago, mentioned how, you know, in the sort of entirety of the tenure of uh, the Roosevelt Truman administration, Truman had only met with Roosevelt individually a handful of times. And so really did come into this pretty uninformed, um, certainly not really aware of the magnitude. Um, and so I have to imagine that there would be no other way to move forward but to rely on what is already in motion. And unless that seems completely egregious at this point, this plan seems to make sense. Right, that's right. I mean, we think of the vice presidency um, these days shaped by more recent vice presidents, but it was, uh, it was really a job constitutionally that started as a legislative branch job. It's the president of the Senate. Uh, and of course, while presiding in the Senate, the vice president is hanging around in case the, the president dies, but he's not really in the executive branch in a functional high responsibility form. And that was certainly how Franklin Roosevelt used his three vice presidents as sort of legislative uh, liaisons and leaders. The executive branch planning and policymaking was the cabinet and the inner circle in the White House. Harry Truman just was not in that. Mm -hmm. And of course he'd only been vice president um, since January of 1945, um, less than four months later, he's got the top job. Yep. Well, and so one of the things that also struck me in uh, part of this is because you and I have had some conversations. And then when I was doing the research I did for the conversation about the London conference that kicked off these teas, um, one of the things I had read is that one of the reasons that President Truman um, also liked Justice Jackson to move forward with this was that they had a similar view on what should be done. So that the tri there should be an actual trial um, as, opposed to, uh, as opposed to something lesser or an execution sort of right off the bat. And so I was also struck by in the report, he specifically lays out, we can have a hearing or you know, we can let them go. Um, we could have a hearing and ex or we can execute them without having a hearing or we should have a real hearing and present evidence. And so I thought that was interesting that he was spelling that out again so explicitly because at least my understanding was President Truman was already on board with that plan. I think of internal to Truman thought process question and, and you know, he kept some diaries and confided in various people, but it's, it's very hard to be sure at what point in time Truman's being. This is one of the moments releasing this Jackson report on June 7th, 1945. You know where it is. He says, here's this report. I agree with every word of it. This is what I want. Um, but if you kind of roll that back um, into April when Truman is new in the job, if he had gotten a strong push from, say, General Marshall, General Eisenhower, Secretary Stimson, and others to line up the Nazis and shoot them, 
you know, I don't know. Nobody was proposing that. The inner circle was comprised of people who were already of this law vision and recruiting a top law was part of the law vision. Um, and Truman agrees with it. I mean, you know, he was morally a, a good and decent man. I don't mean to suggest he had any other instinct, but uh, it's not his. It's a event that is declaration that is their circle that is presented to Truman and is man to steward this. Truman did know and think the world of Robert Jackson. Um, they had interacted most significantly when Jackson had been attorney general and Truman as a senator from Missouri was gearing up what became the Truman Committee that was looking into defense co contracting and gouging and scams during World War II, uh, which really you know, was a great legislative oversight endeavor and made Truman's national reputation. This is during Roosevelt's third term, basically. Mm -hmm. um, at the start of that process in 1941, uh, Truman realizes, you know, I got to get a good staff, a, you know, like a specially trained investigative staff to do this. He picks up the phone and he calls the attorney general, Robert Jackson, and says, who's your best man in DOJ? And it was pretty much all men then. So I'm picking the noun deliberately. Um, and Jackson says, uh, there's a lawyer named Hugh Fulton who has worked closely with me on high stakes matters, prosecuted a lot of cases. He's a fantastic investigator. Um, I will release him to do this if you wish to interview him and recruit him. And Truman does. He spends a really significant part of his initial committee budget on Hugh Fulton's salary, just to get the guy to be the chief counsel. And mm -hmm. Hugh Fulton is a dazzling success. So Truman, you know, in the time period and ever after, I and mean, down to his memoirs in his retirement, says, you know, I owe everything to Robert Jackson because he gave me Hugh Fulton, and Hugh Fulton was great, and thus the Truman Committee was great, and thus I became vice president, and then look what happened. Yep. So there's that kind of um, background of, you know, trust and track record mm -hmm. that Truman has before April of 1945. And certainly always important in politics, but perhaps never more so than when he is trying to figure out who to trust and, and how to move forward, that those who already have established relationships with him are also um, those he would turn to. Right, right. Now, I want to pick up, if I may, on the sort of three paths yes. um, that, that you mentioned and that Jackson sketches out in this report to Truman. Um, th there's kind of a conceptual revolution that's happening here in 1945, which is that the conquering powers victorious in a war can hold the vanquished legally accountable for starting it. That breach of the peace, that violation of peace treaties, that waging aggressive war became illegal in the international system at some time before the Nazis took power. I mean, 1928 uh, and the Kellogg-Briand Pact, among other things, which Jackson mentions in this report. Um, and so what Jackson is sort of signed on to and committed to and explaining to Truman is that there are other options, including the sort of traditional previous option, which is that, you know, when you win a war, it's all in your hands. You can slay them. You can shake hands with them. You can exile them. You can impoverish them. You can enslave them. You know, it's, you know, it's just the 
power of sovereign states. Have a war, hopefully win a war, then be more powerful and rich because you've gotten the, the spoils of that war. Um, and, you know, if you lose a war, you know, lick your wounds and hope that you aren't vanquished and get stronger. And then if you want to fight another war, come back and do it the next time. It's just what nations do. Right. Not, in, not anymore is what Jackson's saying. You still have that option, Mr. President, but you know, frankly, our country and the allied powers have spent these years and an enormous amount of treasure and an enormous amount of human life winning this war. If we just you know, sort of say, oh, well, you know, shake hands and slink away Nazis, um, that's not proportionate and appropriate mm -hmm. to what they have done. At the other pole, if we line them up and shoot them, even if we've dressed it up with some summary proceeding. Um, you know, a historic incident occurred at dawn this morning and then um, the guns were fired. Um, and whether we're talking a handful or dozens or hundreds or tens of thousands, you know, think of that pyramid again, um, we will have done something brutal, um, something that our children will not look back on in, with pride is the phrase that Jackson uses. Yes. Um, it may sort of fit our vengeance in the moment, you know, God, look what they did and they must pay and now they have paid and that's the end of it. Um, but think, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of their grandchildren or great grandchildren. Think how we would look back on the conclusion of World War II if it had ended with American, British, French, Russian firing squads uh, obliterating captured Nazi prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think rightfully we would be appalled by that at a kind of human decency level. Um, and and or the world would look so different now that you know, it would that either we would be completely appalled or it wouldn't occur to us to be appalled because there would have been so many wars or something in between there that it would just seem like this is what exactly. But even across the Allied powers, and I don't want to throw too many rocks here, but think of how we look at Soviet Russian behavior in the post-war period. Not so much at Nuremberg where the Russians had a good moment, but um, think of the gulags and think of the show trials and think of the exiles to Siberia um, and you know how we contrasted American democracy with that for 50 years of the Cold War. Um, that path of behavior uh, doesn't sit well with us as a matter of decency. So Jackson's saying between, you know, shake hands and bygones are bygones and line them up and shoot them, there's a middle path. It's a new path, but it is a legally valid path because the development of international law had already reached the stage of forswearing war, which is to hold accountable the aggressors who started it. That's these Nazis in the European theater. And what they did in starting the war was also cause the toll of suffering, mis misery, atrocity that went with it. So the war is the wrapper around all of the crimes that are within Jackson's portfolio here, including crimes against humanity, human rights crimes, war, war crimes on the battlefield. Um, the big crime is the war. And the war was illegal. And the war was done by arch criminals who didn't have a particular venue in which they did it we will have a proceeding that holds them accountable, a fair one before the eyes of the world. Well, and I had thought that interesting as well, because certainly there are people who had said that um, trying the Nazis after this was actually sort of making crimes after the fact. And so there was, there's that whole legal debate of, 
could this actually, should this actually have happened because it wasn't technically a crime leading up to this. And so I was struck by the fact that he walks through the Brian Kellogg pact and um, I'm gonna say it's, he goes back to ancient Rome and oh, sort of like here- Locarno and lots of bilateral treaties. Yes, yes. absolutely, Versailles. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, our own constitution prohibits ex post facto punishments. And Jackson is, you know, from Western New York to the national stage to the US Supreme Court, et cetera, an American lawyer. This is sort of baked into his legal understanding of what's fair play. You don't sort of make up new rules after the fact and then blow the whistle on people who didn't have a chance to play by those rules. Right. Um, so having a legitimate principled view that these were not ex post facto crimes was Jackson's, I think, sort of entry price. He wasn't going to be part of, you know, something that was phonied up. He didn't doubt the president's power to phony something up, to have a firing squad, to act with vengeance. But that's, you know, that's war power. Mm -hmm. If you want to bring law into this, law brings due process, law brings fairness, law demands pre-existing standards and doesn't punish things ex post facto. So where was the pre-existing law? It's in the treaty commitments mm -hmm. that Germany had made and that Nazi Germany had made and that the nations of the world had made that we're not going to start wars with each other. Um, and, and, and then human rights crimes and others are spelled out in more specific treaties. So Jackson thought that, that the law was there. Now, it had never been used in a criminal prosecution against a head of state in an international court. You know, all of this was novel at the level of implementation. Um, and no question, the court is ex post facto. Um, the threat of prosecution is an ex post facto notion. You know, nobody said when everyone was signing Kellogg-Briand um, that, you know, if you decide to have an aggressive war now, the rest of us are going to convene an international court and hold you accountable for that. But those procedures are implementation of the fundamental norms which already existed. That's the key thing in Jackson's view. And that and, makes sense. And, and one more thing on ex post facto, he starts to sort of hint at this, and then this becomes part of his arguments across the Nuremberg trial. Um, even if these arguments aren't wholly satisfactory, by doing this here, we will remove for the future any claim that it's ex post facto. This isn't yeah, ex post I was facto. With that language that the U.S. has this—it's a critical point where it can influence international law. So that if this, um, they can use this moving forward um, and bring bring other people along with them to. I think that's I right. have so, that Justice Jackson really wanted to make all war illegal. Uh, yes, you know, that's right. So you know, th this war was illegal. He firmly believed and. Um, you know, for the rest of his life, explained and felt quite confident that he had the better of the argument. But, you know, there's debate and there are critics. Um, but come the next time, you know, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s and forward, there would be Nuremberg. There would be this marker. There would be this precedent so that the next aggressor couldn't claim, oh, I didn't know. I wasn't on notice. The Nuremberg trial, in effect, would have put them on notice. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. There was also, uh, I think he recognized some of the challenges perhaps with the Anglo-American approach to law or certainly the American approach to law because he is conscious of fairness is a crucial part 
but also wanting to try and avoid delay tactics or um, uh, the ability for people to sort of skirt around and very specifically mentions he is not in favor that a head of state could avoid justice. And similarly, that someone just following orders could avoid justice because in effect, that meant nobody. That's right. Yeah, well, what, what, what this legal vision here in June of 1945 defines, and then it's sort of codified in the London Agreement in August of 1945, and then it's implemented with the IMT proceeding at Nuremberg, is to sort of eliminate those escape hatches um, to define as out of order, to not permit the argument, I'm a head of state, so I'm immune. And to define as a satisfactory defense, I was following somebody's order. Because if the people below can point to some top guy and the top guy can say, I'm the top guy, and thus all of them are immune, nobody's on the hook. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there, there is a sort of power to define the framework that's being used here. It's being used by Jackson, it's being accepted and endorsed by Truman, it's then being taken to London and negotiated and insisted upon by Jackson. And in all of this, the British are with the US, uh, but eventually it's accepted by the USSR and France. Um, that head of state immunity is gone and that following orders is not a defense to guilt. Following orders can bear on punishment. It can be argued as mitigation. You know, it's a, it's a mercy factor in deciding what to do with a guilty person, but it doesn't make a guilty person legally innocent. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, sometimes we think that Nuremberg was just um, a sort of idealistic uh, notion that got implemented. It's an idealistic notion and it is a power position being exercised. Um, you know, there's, it's sort of a, a shining moment of unity almost. There was a world war and the world won. Um, the allied powers have won on the battlefield and they're still sticking together to figure out how to do the rule of law project of accountability afterwards. Um, and this is how they're gonna use their power. They're gonna eliminate head of state immunity. They're gonna eliminate following orders as a defense. They're going to uh, create this international court. They're gonna find a location. They're gonna have a try, you know, what becomes the next year of Nuremberg. Um, and of course, if there hadn't been that power, they couldn't have done this. And if there hadn't been that consensus, um, obviously some would not have participated in it. But by and large, the world participated in it. It's the four nations plus more than a dozen others are mm -hmm. sort of subscribing nations to the London Agreement. Um, you know, the United Nations uh, is also in this moment, a kind of unity project being brought to bear. Uh, and at the end of the Nuremberg trial, the UN General Assembly endorses the Nuremberg judgment, you know, by unanimity, basically. The world is using its power to draw these lines and create these institutions. And that's certainly important. I, I want to turn a little bit too, because we we're talking about the allies and this at this point, we're still three-ish weeks or so away from Justice Jackson, well, the London conference start. And at this point, it sounds as if he's certainly willing to go it alone. He specifically says, you know, I will do this on behalf of America. We will do this moving right. forward. Seems to think probably the British are coming with him because he spent some time with that. But at this point- I like in, that phrase, the British are coming. <laughs> pulling in all of my historic references here. Um, so at this point in early June, 
is the London conference a foregone conclusion or is it still, I'm not sure how many other people are going to move forward with us on this. Yeah, it's pretty clear that Jackson's going to London because the Rosenman, Simon, ironing out co-planning had been interrupted, had really come back to the U US, had been briefly resumed a little bit uh, diplomatically in Washington and then out at San Francisco as the United mm -hmm. Nations is being created out there. And then kind of the hot potato is tossed to Jackson. Um, so, you know, he's, he's gonna go to London and he's gonna be working with the British. And they are hoping that the other allied powers will be with them. So they're going to be inviting the French and inviting the Russians. Um, it turned out that you know the French uh, sent a couple of people. It's a short boat ride. Um, the British gave them uh, accommodations and so forth. Um, that wasn't a hard recruit. It was very much in doubt whether the Russians were really going to show up um, and whether London was going to be a you know a four-party, four-sided table conference as it turned out to be. Um, so Jackson's there. He leaves the U.S. on June 18th. Um, and, you know, so two days later, give or take, he's in London and shaking off jet lag and stealing office space from the OSS and starting to meet with the American ambassador and British counterparts uh, and asking the Russians and Washington's asking the Russians to send their people. Um, it really doesn't happen for about a week more. Mm -hmm. And then, so we talked a little bit on this and I wanna sort of use this as our jumping off point perhaps to questions, but um, I was also struck by his outlining of defining the crimes and sort of the compass he was using was, he used the term, those that have offended the conscience. Yeah. Um, and so this really was a moral, you know, his a moral lens through which he was viewing this. Um, and starts by talking about the atrocities against persons or properties in violation of international law. So that brings in the treaties um, and then atrocities and offenses going back to 1933. So really trying to encompass the entire- All, all of Nazi Germany, yes. Right. Um, and he specifically calls out um, those atrocities on racial and religious grounds. Right. Um, and then the invasion of the other countries and the wars of aggression. Yeah, and um, ultimately over time, they kind of back off from that ambition. By the time the Nuremberg trial is starting and certainly by the time it concludes, the to aggressive war period. Uh, you know, ideology, anti-Semitism, concentration camps in Germany, all the things, Nuremberg laws that precede 1939 are relevant, but are not sort of crimes in you know, themselves. And I think kind of things are going on there consensus how to use power starts to fracture once of judging intra nation is the vision um you know the british have a colonial empire and what they're doing to their subjects includes all kinds of horrific stuff the united states mm -hmm. has racial segregation you know de jure by law segregation and what we're doing to african americans in this country then um, is a horrific human rights crime. Uh, and the French colonies, and of course, lots of things you could point to in the Soviet empire. Uh, so once they kind of start looking at this, they all start to sort of retreat a little bit from intra-Germany focus and focus more on the war, which is the wrapper, but the aggression actually begins with the attack on Poland in September of 1939. So 
so yes, there's a broader vision here than ultimately kind of hits the pavement uh, at Nuremberg uh, because this is early. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things here that are kind of half-baked and preliminary. You can tell that Jackson has a huge amount of smarts and a lot of legal depth, but really only about 30 days of cramming <laughs> on, on this topic. Yep. And so, you know, he, he gets smarter uh, and things get more focused and more honed and more carefully described each and every week as it goes forward. Well, and I, I was struck, I think the, the final section of the report itself is, okay, you probably want to know when can we start and how long will it go? And he uses a lot of words there, although it is the shortest section, but basically says, I have no idea. You know, we're right. still in the process of trying to gather all this stuff. I'm still trying to figure out where the stuff might be. Um, and then, you know, while I've thought about, thought about preparing, we haven't really started that yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to assure Truman, and it's really a state paper, and they both know it's going to be released publicly. He's trying to assure the American people that we're up to something decent here, and it will be relatively prompt. And then he's sort of waffling because he's new at this, and it's got all these moving pieces, and he can't say, you know, on this particular day, we're going to try and start it, and on this day, we're going to finish it. So he's, you know, he's trying to both give the assurance of speed and give himself a little bit of wiggle room right. because it's a mess of complexity. Not back himself into a corner exactly, right. All right, so um, for those of you who are tuning in, this is Tea Time with the Jackson Center. Um, I am Kristen McMahon. Our guest today is John Q. Barrett. Um, John, I'm gonna ask you what's in your Nuremberg mug while we give people an opportunity to, um, to ask some questions. Okay, it's a Nuremberg uh, Christmas market mug uh, from the best Christmas market in Germany, the sort of most authentic one in the heart of Nuremberg. Um, and it's a tea bag. Uh, it is Indian chai tea. Oh, nice. Uh, so I don't have German tea, um, <laughs> but it's delicious. I figured for tea time, I should both have Nuremberg and something delicious. That makes perfect sense, yes. I am drinking a tea called Bungalow because it just, I don't know, for whatever reason, the name of the tea struck me as appropriate for today. Um, and it's a, a lovely black tea out of Smith Tea in Portland, Oregon. Um, and it's, a, it's also one of my favorites, so. All right, so we have a question from Lisa Miller, and this is actually more to do with your uh, biography uh, or your, your love of Jackson and depth, deep knowledge of him. She wants to know if, uh, were Justice Jackson and President Roosevelt aware that they were distant cousins through the Howitt line? Um, I, uh, hi, Lisa, and thank you for a good question. Um, I don't have any indication that they had ever traced that back, although, you know, the early Dutch settlers of New York were a small handful of people, so they, they both knew they were of Dutch descent. They were both uh, members of the genealogical society going back to Staten Island in the 17th century. So I think they, you know, kind of assumed it, might have generally known it, might have talked about it, but I don't have any trace of that. Um, what I do have a trace of is joking by Roosevelt when Jackson's son married Theodore Roosevelt's granddaughter, um, the other side from Franklin's perspective of the Roosevelt family. Uh, and FDR referred to that as something of a mixed marriage. Um, you know, <laughs> FDR, Democrats, offspring marrying into the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's. Nice. 
Um, so we have a question um, from Helena. And so she said that um, you said going into this, they both knew that this was going to be a publicly released statement. Um, and you also mentioned early on that um, President Truman even made some public comments about this the day it was released. It was a, a, a press conference, I believe. Right. Um, and so was that um, to give Justice Jackson sort of the imprimatur or give this process the, the force of, you've mentioned before that really the only audience he had to convince was President Truman because that's where, where that force was going to come from and that ability to move, move forward. Yeah, um, thank you, Helena. I, I think it had been um, not only aimed at Truman, but it was to assist Truman. Um, you know, Truman as the president, what do you do with these Nazis who are now our prisoners who caused this war? And you know, at first he can say, I've given the job to Jackson. But after a couple of weeks, the follow-up question is like, okay, Jackson. Right. And now sort the report state publicly. This is what it is. It's decent, it's literate and impressive, it's a beautiful thing to read, and it's a plan to be fair and expeditious in holding people accountable. Um, so I, th I think they were both, you know, part of the plan to uh, have this be a public report. Jackson was meeting with Truman fairly regularly or communicating through, you know, top direct intermediaries during this period, late April into June. Um, and so, you know, in one of those conversations, no doubt, Jackson said, um, you know, what, you know, what he did in Europe and how the situation looked do you want me to put this in a report? And Truman, no doubt, said, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is really Jackson's last of this Supreme Court term. I mean, Jackson was a fabulous writer um, and had cranked out all of his Supreme Court work. He wrote this report the same way he wrote Supreme Court opinions, you know, hands-on, his own pen, um, lots of rewriting and editing, and, you know, very thoughtful and elegant wording. Um, and delivered that for Truman to understand and endorse and release and benefit from. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. All right, we have a question from Michael. Wants to know what you're currently working on. Hi, Michael. Uh, I'm working on Robert Jackson. Uh, I am using this pandemic time uh, a little bit unexpectedly grounded and kept from you know, archives and research resources, uh, but I'm working on the biography of Jackson. I do this in you know sort of different parts. There are always lectures and articles. Um, I have the Jackson list, which if viewers don't know, the mass that I do a couple of times a month. Uh, the com. Click in and subscribe. I, I probably will post an essay about this report uh, in the next couple of days. Um, but all of it is uh, you know a long-term big project that will be, uh, as I envision it, two principal books, one about Jackson at Nuremberg and one that is a life of Jackson. Uh, and I am well towards the conclusion of the first and uh, I would say midway uh, with regard to the second. Gotcha. And for um, those of you, we will post uh, the link to the Jackson List, but again, it's thejacksonlist.org if you're interested. The jacksonlist.com um, and uh, John sends out periodic uh, essays and notes on uh, either uh, you know, on historic days or 
um, things going on currently that seem to have some relevance uh, to, or Justice Jackson has relevance to, and uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's not overwhelming. It's very, but very good, just bite-sized pieces to give you an understanding of Justice Jackson. Um, Helena had another question, and it was about how. So he had obviously started gathering a staff by this point as well. Um, and so what was what was that process like? Was he, uh, you know, were people interviewing? Was he sort of picking from various parts of the government? Um, what that's, did, a, that's a great question. He, uh, again, officially announced on May 2nd, um, is sort of the top guy on top of a lot of pre-existing activity. And so he's pulling some of that expertise and some of those pre-existing pods into this new entity. OCC is what they called it, Office of Chief of Counsel. Um, so in the War Department, in the Army, in the Department of the Judge Advocate General, there was a team of lawyers working on treaty violations and war crimes. Um, and there was a political level above that, a lawyer working on the theory of aggressive war as a crime and how to prosecute the organizations for conspiracy. Jackson sort of incorporates both of those parts of the War Department into his staff. Um, there is at the State Department a very kind of grudging attitude about this whole project, but some expertise about treaty law. And Jackson takes the leading uh, legal advisor's office treaty lawyer from the State Department and adds her to his staff. Um, there are in the European theater um, some people who are sort of OSS and post-OSS intelligence and uh, evidence gathering um, experts, if you will, and Jackson incorporates them into his staff. He's also got a couple of you know, wild cards or draft picks of his own, and he pulls in a couple of superstars or you know, known to him uh, or highly recommended people. Um, his friend, Frank Shea, who had been the Dean of the Law School at the University of Buffalo, then became the head of the civil division in the Justice Department through Jackson is in Washington and they're very close and Shea's a fabulous lawyer. He takes Shea from DOJ and makes him part of the staff. Um, a lawyer named Gordon Dean, who had worked closely with Jackson in DOJ, um, is in military service. Jackson gets him basically sent back to shore and to Washington and he adds him to the staff. Um, he needs trial prosecutors and trial prosecutors who have experience in these kind of big mobster cases, if you will. Uh, because that's the vision of what the Nazi inner circle arch criminals really are. Mm -hmm. um, and so he recruits a guy in military service named John Amen, who was a big prosecutor of Murder, Inc. in Brooklyn in the 1930s. He recruits Tom Dodd, who had prosecuted Department of Justice cases all across the country, including a lot of big conspiracy cases in the 1940s. He needs some podium talent and great advocacy. So he recruits a lawyer named Sidney Alderman, who was the general counsel of the Southern Railroad. Hmm. Not a war guy, not a crime guy, not, you know, obviously not anything that seems connected to this, except he was the single best advocate in Jackson's view before the US Supreme Court in those years. Mm -hmm. And so he recruits Alderman and Alderman persuades the Southern Railroad to let him go to be, you know, his top trial lawyer, if you will, or top advocate. Um, and he recruits General Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, uh, to be his deputy, to be the number two, uh, both because knowledge of Nazi crimes and behavior on the ground is what the OSS had, and because Bill Donovan, 
was a prominent Republican. Jackson had been a prominent Democrat, so this gave it a bit of a bipartisan cast. Mm -hmm. And Bill Donovan was from Western New York, so there's a little bit of parochial uh, comfort level. Jackson had known him going back a couple of decades. Um, so he's, he's sort of piecing this together. All told, we're talking a couple dozen people. Well, I want to say something, and I want to make sure this didn't get uh, slipped past people. So the woman, rec the person recruited from the Department of State was a woman. Yes, Catherine Fight. Yeah. Um, and she was the only sort of high level woman lawyer on the Jackson team virtually from the start. Uh, there's contact with her in Washington. She's actually not recruited until Jackson's already in London formally because the State Department isn't so interested in lending a person. Um, but she becomes a very important um, inner circle advisor during the London conference and in the sort of launch phase of the Nuremberg trial. And then because we have mentioned this a couple of times right now, why wasn't the State Department such a big fan or why was this a begrudging um, aspect for them? Well, I think there are two levels. I don't mean to slight the whole State Department. At the top level, Secretary Statinius uh, was cabinet level support for this plan. Um, and in short order, Truman cleared the Roosevelt cabinet and appointed his own people. So he fired Statinius. He installed Jim Burns um, as the new Secretary of State. Burns had been a Supreme Court justice alongside Jackson for a year. So, you know, the Secretary of State is a Jackson friend and a Jackson ally through this. But in the ranks of the State Department, particularly in the Foreign Service, um, they had a kind of formalistic view that the sovereign power of nations meant immunity from this kind of imposition by other states. You could negotiate things, of course, uh, but you know, putting another head of state in the dock and a foreign minister in the dock, you know, that's never been done. And so that was a kind of reflex of hostility to uh, what, in the end, the United States and the Allies did to Ribbentrop, the Nazi foreign minister, that offended the diplomats. I can, I can understand that. Um, well, I can understand their perspective on that. <laughs> I have to be careful with my words. Um, so those are all of the questions that we have today. Michael did also follow up with a thank you. He enjoys the Jackson List email and he's looking forward to your books. Um, so I wanted to make sure I said that. So thank you all very much for being with us today. And I look forward to seeing you next week. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's producer is Nicole Gustafson. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website, 
We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.